Well, I could not be more excited. I'm always excited, but extra excited today because we're kicking off a brand new sermon series. Every year as I read through my Bible, how much of my Bible do I read every year? All of it. When I get to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Because I'm seeing Jesus up close and in detail. What he did, what he said, and how he interacted with weak, sinful people like us. And so for several years now, I keep idea files. For several years, it's been brewing inside me. Ooh, I think I want to preach through a gospel. I've been here for 25 years and we've never preached through a gospel I want to preach through a gospel so that our entire church family could see Jesus more clearly. And we're not going to be in a hurry either. Not going to be in a hurry. This new sermon series that we're going to jump into in the book of Luke is going to take us on out into the next several years. Yeah. I hope you're okay with that. I know I am because here's the deal. If basic Christianity, and it's time for Christians to come back to what it means to be a Christian. If basic Christianity is us becoming more like Jesus, then we better be seeing Jesus and listening to Jesus in the midst of all the chaos and noise in our world. We got to walk with him. We got to look at him. We got to listen to him. If you want to become more like him, who you hang out with. Who you fix your eyes on, who you listen to, starts to shape you and influence you. So we're going to walk with Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus. We're going to listen to Jesus. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Well, as we jump into a new sermon series, I want to start by answering some questions about this book we're going to dig into. Here's the first question. Number one, what did Luke intend to do when he wrote this book? See, I love to read, but you can really have some struggles if you don't understand the author's intent. If you keep expecting one thing and it's not what they intended to do, it's it helpful to know what was the author's intent. Intent. What did he intend to do? I mean, people publish tons of books for all kinds of reasons, right? People publish all kinds of books. Fiction, fantasy, romance. Mystery, self-help, how-to, history, and more. So what did Luke intend to do when he wrote his gospel? Especially since there were already two gospels in existence at that time. The gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark already existed. So what was he doing? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing. He makes it clear. He tells us that he was trying to persuade or convince a friend named 
Theophilus that everything you've heard and read about Jesus is true. It's true. It's true. It's true. And he didn't just pray for his friend. You know, it's great to pray for your friend. I'm sure he did. Oh, no. He didn't just pray for Theophilus. Here's what you got to appreciate about Luke. He sets out to write a two-volume, 52-chapter book that we now call the books of Acts and Luke. If you've been with us a while, you remember he wrote the book of Acts to Theophilus and say, I want to tell you the things that have continued to happen since Jesus went back to heaven. He wrote a two-volume, 52-chapter book that we call Luke and Acts to convince Theophilus of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, if you put his two books together, here's what sometimes people don't realize. If you put his two books together, Luke and Acts, then you'll realize Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other author, including the Apostle Paul. We tend to think, oh, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote a lot of short books, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians. Luke wrote two long, detailed books and therefore wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. And even though these first four verses that we're digging into today are written in a very refined and classical style that was characteristic of academic and scholarly credentials. You'll see as we move on in to the Gospel of Luke that Luke does not intend to use scholarly language. He uses the language of the man on the street because he was not trying to impress people with his academic credentials or his literary skill. Luke wanted people, the common person, Man, woman on the street to understand who is Jesus and what did he do? Who is Jesus and what did he do? In other words, here's what excites me about the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote this gospel for people who have never met Jesus. Maybe that's you today. Here or listening online at home. You you don't know Jesus. You've never met him. You don't know that much about him at all. This book is for you. Luke wrote this gospel for people who need to see in a fresh way the compassion and mercy of Jesus. Oh my goodness, we need more compassion and mercy today and we need to see it from Jesus. That's why I chose Luke. Luke, more than any of the four gospel writers, brings you the compassion and mercy of Jesus as he interacts with broken people. We need to see that again He wrote this gospel for people who aren't quite sure about Jesus. You've got doubts. You've got concerns. You still say, I need to think about it. I need to think about it. I need to think about it. This book is for you. As you think about it, you need to look at the record of who Jesus is and think about it with the record of the gospel. It's for you. And he wrote this book for people who are just starting to trust Jesus and need to be more secure in their faith. I hope you realize you don't want your faith to be built on feelings. I I feel it. I feel it like nothing I've ever felt before. And that can happen on the front end of becoming a Christian. Guess what? Feelings don't stay that huge every day. What are you going to do on the days you're not feeling it? Is it true or is it not? He wrote this book for those who need to be more secure in their faith. Because your faith should be based on fact, not feelings. 
So here's what I love about this book that excites me. I think it's going to be a great book for every one of us, regardless of where you are right now. Luke, that was his intent. So if that's what he intended to do, how did he go about doing it? That's question number two. How did he go about doing it? Well, first of all, he did careful research. He did careful research. Look at verse three again. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. The New American Standard says, I have followed all things accurately from the beginning. Now think about it. Luke was a medical physician. And so he understood the importance of careful, thorough research. No physician I know of just throws things together, right? Just glances at a chart. They're careful. They're thorough. One of the things I appreciate most about my physician, he's in our church family, and I know many of others of you have seen the same thing. He will not get, give up until he gets to the bottom of it. What is really going on? They look at the data carefully. They compare stuff. They bring it all in. He was careful and thorough as he brings us who Jesus is. And what he's done. In fact, as you look closely at the four gospels, I love that we have four gospels because you've got different people bringing their observations and bringing us the record of who Jesus was and what he did. And as you look closely at the four gospels, you'll see that if Mark was a storyteller and John was a philosopher, John is the most philosophical of the four gospel writers. You think about it, he doesn't begin with genealogies like Matthew. In the beginning, so-and-so begat, 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 begat. That wasn't his purpose. He wasn't writing to the Jews. In that day, the Greeks were very philosophical and they had this thing called the word, the word. Remember how? In the beginning was the Word And the word was God and the word was with God. The same was in the beginning. Without him was a, he tells you, I want you to, I want to tell you who that person is at the meaning of life, at the center of life. Tell you who that word is. He's the living word. Mark was a storyteller. John was a philosopher. Luke was an investigative reporter with a doctor's gift for observation because he brings us some of the most precious details about Jesus that other gospel writers omit. Do you realize there are stories that get repeated in all four gospels? You say, well, there that story is again. There it is again. There. Do you realize there's some things that only one gospel writer brings us? Luke's that guy. Luke's that guy. He had the gift of observation like a physician who's thorough and careful and gives us precious details that other gospel writers omit. You say, Brad, what are you talking about? Well, it's the reason his gospel is the longest of any other. But here's what I'm talking about. It's in the gospel of Luke that we learn about the birth of John the Baptist, his mother's pregnancy and the infancy of Jesus, because he probably interviewed both mothers. It's in Luke that we hear about and we're told about the Christmas carols. You know, those places where someone sings rejoicing about the news of Jesus. It's only in Luke that we get the Christmas carols of Mary, Zechariah, Simeon, and the angel choir. It's in Luke that we get the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son. It's only Luke. Two of the most precious and powerful parables that Jesus spoke 
Luke's the one that brings them to us. And I love this. It's one of the reasons I chose Luke. It's Luke more than any other gospel writer that gives us a fuller portrait of the women who followed Jesus. Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, as well as the two sisters, Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10. Probably get there in a year. You see, Luke did his research with the rigors of a prize-winning journalist. Asking who, what, when, where, why. He did careful research. But not just that. He didn't just work hard and do careful research. Secondly, he took an historical approach. He took an historical approach. You see, Luke begins his gospel. The way he begins this gospel, if if you thought it seems like, wow, kind of a run-on sentence. It is one long sentence in the Greek. But this is the way other historians in his day would preface what they were about to write. He matches the way other historians would begin what they're going to say. He begins his gospel with a preface that was laid out the same way as other historians in his day. Because he wanted us to understand, you guys. He wanted us to understand that he was setting the life of Jesus and Christianity on the stage of world history, not fantasy. Luke never intended to write a legend that would inspire us. You hear people say things like, well, even if it isn't true, it's inspiring. That's pathetic. If it's not true, we're all still going to hell. More inspired. It's like I've got hallmark inspiration, but my ultimate destination is still hell. That's not good news to me. I don't want to know how I can live a more inspired life now. I want to know how I can be right with the God of the universe and my soul and my conscience cries out. Something ain't right. Uh, This whole world groans. Something's not right. My own life groans. Something not right. I don't need inspiration. I need transformation. He said it on the stage of world history because he never intended to write a legend that would inspire you he intended to record history about a person who could change you forever and his name is say it again jesus jesus look at what he says in verse two just as those from the beginning were i witnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them To us, he's telling us plainly that he wrote his gospel based on other existing sources and eyewitnesses. In other words, he listened to some of the reports for himself and probably interviewed dozens, if not hundreds, of eyewitnesses. Because here's what I want you to realize Jesus' ministry was very public, not private. Public. Public. Jesus spoke to huge crowds of thousands of people. Jesus fed 5,000 people on one event. And you need to realize they didn't count women and children. So that was probably 20,000 people that saw Jesus feed them with baskets of food left over. Huge crowds. His ministry was very public. He healed people in the bustling marketplace, right in the marketplace and in the busy synagogue. He was constantly healing someone in the synagogue while it was 
teeming with people. Public, public, public. And he would stop funeral processions in the middle of the street and raise the dead. Public, public. And he would stand up in the middle of key festivals when thousands of extra people had traveled from other cities to Jerusalem and declare to be the very fulfillment of the festival they were celebrating and the scripture they were focusing on and would say he made outrageous claims. I am the fulfillment of the very thing you're all celebrating and the very scripture you're reading right now. Public, not private. So much of what Jesus did took place in front of huge crowds, which is why the Apostle Paul said what he did in Acts. We already saw it in Acts 26, 26, when Paul was making his defense in front of King Agrippa, who had ruled over that region. And he said, he said, remember what he said? I know, King Agrippa, that you are familiar with all of these events because these things did not happen. Say it. In a corner. These things did not happen in a corner. Oh, listen to me. Jesus did not just slip into this world and privately try to convince a handful of gullible disciples to follow him with a few party tricks and sleight of hand. No. No. Jesus rocked the ancient Roman world By saying and doing some very public things. Which means there were tons of eyewitnesses still alive who could contradict immediately what Luke was saying if he's just making stuff up. You can't just make stuff up when thousands of eyewitnesses are still alive. Luke was not writing a legend. He was recording history, history, which is why you're going to see it's why his book is so long. You're going to see as we move forward. It's almost like he clutters up the beginning of chapters with so many details. Who was ruling in what region? How many fish were caught in the net? How many people were there? Why? Because it's history. And when you look to see, is that who was ruling there? And was it in that region? And did this other people? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, he includes details. When you write a legend, you don't go into details. Luke goes into details because he's recording history. It actually happened. And whenever modern scholarship has been able to check, Here's the other thing you need to realize. Don't make the mistake. Oh, these were just uneducated, gullible disciples who hardly were literate. And they wrote down some of these things. Paul had the equivalent of a Ph.D. and had studied the feet of the leading educators of his day. Luke was a medical physician, intelligent, academic credentials. So get this. When modern scholarship has been able to check on the accuracy of Luke's work, which again, I don't mean to beat up on other religions, but I do it because the media so often would like you to believe there's no difference. All religions are the same. Just pick your flavor. When you read the Book of Mormon, try to find the coin they're talking about. Ain't going to find it. Try to dig up the city they're talking about. You won't find it. When you read the Bible, you find what they're talking about because it actually happened. 
In the words of the famous British archaeologist, William Ramsey, quote, Luke is a historian of first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. He seizes the important and critical events. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Whenever historians check the accuracy of Luke, they say he should be placed alongside of all the other finest historians. So Luke did careful research. He took an historical approach, not fantasy, not legend. But there's something else I want to point out about how he did what he did. Luke and the other gospel writers includes outrageous and culturally offensive details. They say, what's your point, Brad? Why does that matter? Well, I'll tell you why. Because if you wanted to create a hoax, right? Some people say, oh, people are just trying to start another religion and get people to believe something that wasn't really true. If you wanted to create a hoax and convince people to believe something that was not true, you would not have included so many of the details that Luke records in his gospel. Here's what I mean. Like Jesus being killed, executed by crucifixion. Maybe you've lived in America and you've been, in, you've been around Christianity or in a church so much that, that that doesn't strike you the way it should. You're like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Here's what you need to understand. Death by crucifixion was not just the most painful and most drawn out way to die. The Romans had perfected one of the most painful drawn out ways. Most, most would, would last two to three days. They would stay alive two to three days and that was the point. In agony, you did not die quickly. Yes, it was one of the most painful, drawn out ways. But you guys, it was the most shameful, vile, ignominious way to die. That was reserved for the lowest criminal. You were naked. This puts things in perspective. A Roman citizen, regardless of what he or she had done, regardless of how how heinous their crime was, could not be executed by crucifixion. No Roman citizen. This was shameful, vile. And yet that's how all four gospels record Jesus died. If you're creating a hoax, A, your hero wouldn't die. B, not by crucifixion. Consider the birth of Jesus. Every, you know, I think it's going to be fun to get to the birth of Jesus at a time other than Christmas. And to get the resurrection at a time other than Easter. Because it's true all year long. That's going to be fun. But consider the birth of Jesus. Who were the first witnesses that received this amazing good news. That there's one that's born. There's one that's born. There's one that's born. Shepherds. Shepherds. Don't make a mistake and say, I love shepherds. (laughs) If you have warm, fuzzy thoughts about them. You don't understand the culture of the day. Shepherds were despised. They were outcast and they were considered the dregs of society. They stanketh. Right? They're out in the fields. You had to sleep day and night out there. You smelled like sheep poop. No one wanted to be around a shepherd. No one wanted to listen to a shepherd. No one wanted to believe anything a shepherd said. And yet, Luke records, shepherds received the word and went first and began to spread the good news. 
The resurrection of Jesus. I've brought this out at Easter, but I'll remind you again. The resurrection of Jesus. Who were the first witnesses that made it to the empty tomb and then began to run and say, he's alive. He's alive. The tomb is empty. He's alive. He's alive. Women. Again, if you don't understand the culture, the testimony of a woman in that ancient culture was considered useless and inadmissible as evidence in the court of law. Didn't matter what a woman said she saw. It doesn't count. Find me a man. Find me a man. Women, all four gospel writers record that women found the empty tomb and women began to spread the good news that Jesus is not dead but is alive and that tomb is empty. If you're making up a story that you want people to believe... You would never include any of this, but Luke does. Why? You ready? Because it actually happened that way. And so get this. The fact that Luke and the other gospel writers include, we're going to see other culturally offensive things. The fact that he includes these outrageous and culturally offensive events actually gives credibility to the veracity of what he is saying because he did not intend to write a legend that would inspire or a fantasy that would fool. He's recording history. He's telling you what actually happened. So there's what he intended to do. There's how he went about doing it. But with the time we have left, I want us to wrestle with the most important question. Which is not what did he intend to do, how did he do it, why? What's his goal? To what end? Why did Luke write his gospel? And you don't have to guess. Why did he go to all the effort to record his gospel? Why did he work so hard for historical accuracy? Why did he take such painstaking efforts in research? Why? You'll find that he, more than any other gospel writer, why was he so comprehensive and why did he put it together so systematically? He tells us in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. He tells us that. Now, in the Greek, the original language, that is a henna clause. It's a preposition, henna. And it meant in order that. So that whenever you saw it, then you know I'm about to find out why all this previous stuff was just given to me. Why? What's the purpose? That you may have, say it, say it again, certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So parents, I think it's a terrible answer. Sorry. When you say to your kids that are growing up in your home and you've taken them to church... Dad, why do we believe this? You just got to believe. Just believe. That's not helpful. We have better answers than that. Now, I'm not saying you have to be an expert, but say things like we believe because Christianity is founded on credible evidence. Credible evidence, Bobby, Susie. That when you dig into the resurrection, people start believing. I think it happened. When you check out Jesus, you think. When you look at the the credibility of the original manuscripts and how they were all over different parts of the world. And when you bring them together, there's such accuracy. We have good basis for what we believe. Christianity is not just a leap into existential darkness based on feeling. We have fact. 
Christianity is based it, so different than other religions. So different. That you may have certainty. That's the key word there. You see, Luke wrote his gospel so that you could be sure of what matters most. He's not writing to entertain. He's not writing to move us emotionally. He was writing to persuade and convince his friend that was probably a Roman high-ranking civil authority. The way he uses the most excellent Theophilus, you think about it, when we were in Acts, that's how he spoke to Felix and Festus, governors and kings, most excellent Felix. Most, we believe this guy was some kind of high-ranking government official. He's trying to persuade and convince his friend that the things you've heard and been taught about Jesus are actually true. 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 That Greek word he uses for certainty in verse 4 there is the word asphalian. That means secure, safe, stable. In other words, he wants Theophilus to understand that the things he's been taught about Jesus are solid. You can stand on them. It won't crumble. He wants him to understand that these are the, this is the unchanging reality of what truly happened. Secure. Secure. So Luke is saying, you think about it. Luke is saying, I don't want you to believe it because it's exciting, though it is. Some of this, when you read it, you're like, whoo, this is good stuff. But he's like, I don't want you to believe it because it's exciting, though it is. I don't want you to believe it because it meets your need. Sometimes people talk this way. Well, it meets a need I have. Well, I'm glad it meets your need. If that, if that boosts you through life and you need it, but I don't need it. He didn't write it and he doesn't want you to believe it because it meets your need, though it will. And he doesn't want you to believe it because it might touch you emotionally on some level. And some days it might. But what about... When none of that is true anymore and you're having that kind of day, he wants you to believe it because it is true. True. And then there's days I stand on that truth and I have a feeling like I've never had before. Hallelujah. On the days I'm not feeling it, thank God I understand it to be true. 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 Don't be that person. If you've been fond of saying this, say it never again. (gasps) Well, it's true for you, but not for me. That's lunacy. Sorry, you guys. That's been popular for about 10 years now. Well, it's true for you, but not for me. Stupid. It's like talking about gravity that way. I'm glad that's true for you, that you're on the ground. Look how I float. It's not true for me. You're going to die, but I'm not. Yet death, true for you, not for me. Just keep living. There will be a funeral for you. Guess it was true. Death is true for everyone. Gravity is true for everyone. Well, I'm glad you need to eat. I don't need to eat. Just go longer than 40 days. Things are either true or they're not. They're either fact or they're fiction. Now, if what you mean by that, I'm glad that, that I'm glad you believe it and that's special to you. It's not me. But you need to be forced to say, I'm choosing to reject and not believe something that is true. It's not just true for you, but not for me. That's the land of lunacy. Luke says, don't believe it because of a feeling. Don't believe it because it meets a certain need. Don't believe it because it's exciting. Believe it because I'm trying to bring you evidence that this is actually happened 
true. See, unlike fiction or fantasy or comic book heroes, Jesus took on flesh and came into this world at a real point in history. Burst into history at a real point. To do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And so unlike the way he's so often portrayed in Hollywood. I know there's been a couple things that have come out that are better lately. But in general, whenever Hollywood gets a hold of Jesus, what do they love to do? They love to portray him as some wandering guru. Who just was, who did a bit of good as he was trying to sort himself out. Shuffling and mumbling across Palestine, not sure who he was and why he was here. So not true. In fact, Luke is that guy, the only one that gives us that account. You remember that account of Jesus as a young boy when he got left behind in Jerusalem by his parents, which is so encouraging to me also. (laughs) I shared this in the first service and oh, the stories I got at the front door. Whether it was at a ski loft where they'd driven all... This one man said, we saw it on television. The police were saying, here's a child. And we're like, he's ours. <laughs> but they had five. I get it. We have five. When you got a lot, you're like, whatever. We can spare one. It's like, <clears throat> those of you that are parents of one and two, right? I, I got him, you got her. When you got five, it's like, whoo. And we were at the Statue of Liberty, if you can imagine. New York City. That's a scary place to lose a child. And we were on the ferry leaving the island. And I, I said, where's Garrett? She said, I thought you had him. I said, I thought you had him. Ah, stop the boat. You know, they'd thrown the rope loose and just going, come, 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 starting to back up. I'm like, ah. they take us back. We run. I said, you go that way. I'll go this way. It's a small island, but it's pretty big. And we're running in opposite directions. And praise God, you can't run with young children. So we just left the other children. But in the mercy of God, these older ladies, when we got back, said, we sense something not good. Well, running, crying mothers, usually something, something. She's weeping, running. I'm just running. They said, we decided to stand near your children, just watch them and pray. Oh, thank you, Lord. And we found him in the security office, praise God, in a big swivel chair, eating a soft serve ice cream cone. He's three. Three, that's how bad we are. But I mean, we were trying to take a group picture, right? And there's this low wall and all the other kids could climb up on the wall in front of the Statue of Liberty. He's so little, I had to stand him on the wall. And when we were done, everyone else got down and we just left. And I'm sure he was like, I need help. But he didn't say that. And some guy with a Hard Rock Cafe t-shirt, long hair, praise God. He just said, I saw him. I thought that doesn't look right just that doesn't look right and he took him to the security office and of course Vicky wept all over Hard Rock Cafe man we took a picture with him (laughs) Jesus got left in Jerusalem and not for an hour it was three days because here's how this worked when you came in for a big festival you're coming from other cities and they would often travel as extended family aunts uncles cousins nephews it was a big time there might be 75 people that traveled together And often women would be all together walking and men were all together. And so you can see how it could happen if you're spread out with 75 people. Mary thought Joseph had him. Joseph thought Mary had him. It took them a day. They traveled a day before they realized ain't nobody got him. 
And so then it took a day to get back. And then it took about a day to search Jerusalem. And when they found him, Mary did what every good mother does. How could you do this to us? And what did Jesus say? Did you not know that I must be about my? He knew he didn't come to be a carpenter. He already knew who he was. And he was sitting there confounding the scribes and religious leaders with his questions and his grasp of scripture. Jesus knew who he was and what he had come to do. And his mission was not cut short or snuffed out by death. In fact, the death of Jesus Christ actually accomplished the very purpose for which Jesus came into our world. Which is why I love how Luke words it in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again where he says, I've undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. The death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus accomplished something. It did something among us. It happened among us and for us. And for us. For us. You see, Luke wrote his gospel so that you can be saved by what Jesus has accomplished. So what is it that Jesus has done for us that all four gospel writers so carefully document? Oh, it's this, you guys. Jesus made the only all-sufficient payment for sin that was separating us from a holy God. And he did it once and for all so that never needs to be repeated again, never needs to be done Again, because a merciful, perfect Savior who was fully God and fully man drank the cup of God's wrath dry for us so that we would never have to taste it. That's what he was doing on the cross. Oh, the physical agony was horrific, but folks... It was the wrath of God poured out on sin. Your sin and my sin was placed on Jesus. And the wrath of a holy God was poured out on Jesus instead of you and instead of me. He came to be a sin substitute and to give his life to solve our biggest problem. The sin problem that separates us from a holy God. That's what the Apostle John was talking about in his gospel when he describes the death of Jesus in John 19, beginning in verse 28. He says, after this, Jesus, Jesus is hanging on the cross at this point. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now, there's that word, what? Accomplished. Wait a minute, Jesus, there's still hungry people. Mm Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, Jesus, there's still blind people and lame people. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute, Jesus, there's still horrible political oppression and injustice. Mm -hmm. That's not what he came to do. Knowing that all things were now accomplished, he had lived the only perfect life fully keeping the law. And he was offering his life, no more lambs, bulls, goats, 
heifers, sweet-smelling incense, grain offering. It never truly could wash away sins. (gasps) Knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. They filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop. Hyssop is just the branch of a tree. Put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is, say it, finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You guys, no one took his life from him. They can't. He is life. He gave his life. He sacrificed his life willingly for us. So what is he talking about? What things had been accomplished? What was finished? The all-sufficient, once and for all, never has to be repeated again, payment for sin that is separating Every one of us, black, white, young, old, educated, uneducated, tons of resources, no resources. Doesn't matter what culture you come from. Your biggest problem is the sin problem you were born with that separates you from a holy God. And you could never fix that. You could never be good enough. You could never keep the Ten Commandments. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Oh, come to Jesus today. Today. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. If, you, if you're here and you don't know him as your savior, for you, he's just an historical figure. For you, maybe he's just, he's inspiring. Oh, come to him today as savior, savior and Lord, savior and Lord. Put your faith and trust in him that he has done for you what you could never do for yourself. Oh, as we go through the Gospels, we're going to see it over and over and over and over and over. I love to say it. You are going to see in Luke how distinctively different from every other religion. Christianity is, the media is wrong when they're like, no difference, no difference. As long as you got a God and some kind of path and some kind of list, you choose. You're going to see how Christianity is distinctly different from every other religion. Because get this. Jesus, you'll see it over and over, invites people to come to him and be saved. Every other religious leader points the way and says, let me tell you the way to be saved. Let me tell you what you need to do. Let me tell you how. Let me point where. But you got to go do it. You got to go do it. You got to go do it. Jesus did not point the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. How many people are going to get together with God without him? No man comes unto the Father but by me. Everybody else says, let me tell you the way. And then you got to go work your spiritual butt off. I said butt, two T's. <laughs> Only Jesus said, come to me. I am the way. I am the way. That's so different. That's so different. What about you today? See, Christianity... If you got lost and it breaks my heart, you might even grown up in a church that claimed to be Christian, claimed to be Protestant, claimed to be about Jesus. But they turned it into religion. They turned it into tradition. They turned it into a path, a list. Because the human heart gravitates towards tell me what to do and I'll do it. What's behind that? Pride. Christianity is not about a path. It's about a person and his name is 
Jesus, what do you have today? I don't care where you grew up, what you think you've done, what you think you know. I'm asking you today, what do you have? Are you resting in a person? Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Or are you striving on a religious path? Trying to do what someone told you to do, trying to do what you read, trying to do what you thought is right, what makes sense to you. Huge difference. Huge difference. And if you're thinking, Brad, help me, how would I know the difference? Let me help you. Religion is always focused on you and what you're trying to do to earn favor with God or please God. While genuine Christianity is focused on a relationship with Jesus Christ and what he's done once and for all for you, for you, for you. Are you caught up in do or do you celebrate done? I know we got different personalities, but I'm going to poke a little here. This is sometimes why worship can look so different. If you're all caught up in do, there's not a lot to celebrate. This, This thing right here, you just constantly feel guilty. You constantly feel exhausted. You constantly feel insecure because you're never sure, am I doing the right things? And even if I'm doing the right things, am I doing enough of the right things? Exhausting. Guilt. When you understand done, when you go from D-O to D-O-N-E, oh, that's when you want to lift your hands just a little bit. That's when you might even shuffle, yea, verily, your feet. And you might shout, done, makes you want to celebrate, makes you want to celebrate, makes you want to celebrate. Do is exhausting and condemning. Done. Done. And even if you're more, your person, at least this, give me this, you know. This is me going crazy right now. Fine. But when you understand done, and you know every day my standing with God is not based on me. On my worst day, he still loves me and sees me and accepts me. On my best day, my best day is still not good enough. It's based on Jesus who never changes. I am in Christ. And his perfect righteousness is mine as if I had done it. And when the father sees me, he sees his son. That sets you free. That gives you joy. That is so different than religion. What do you have? What do you have? And if you're thinking, Brad, I want what you're talking about. Maybe for the first time, as I've been preaching, it's dawned on you. I don't have what he's talking about. Maybe that's why I'm so exhausted. Maybe that's why I feel so guilty still. Maybe that's why I have such doubts and insecurities. Listen, super news. You can go from do to done. Today. You don't have to put money in the offering box. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to walk this aisle. You don't have to sign a card. You can go from do to done by simply putting your faith and trust In Jesus Christ, you say it can't be that easy. It's simple, but guess what? It's not easy. You know what's so hard? You have to humble yourself and repent of pride and actually see that you can't do it and say, I need a Savior. 
You can go from do to done. By grace alone. It's a gift. It's a gift. Through faith alone. You can't work for it. You believe in Christ alone. There are not multiple people that did this for you. One person did this for you. Plus nothing. Oh, you guys, it's not what Jesus has done. Plus what you try to do. Plus nothing. And usually if you're trying to add, it means you still don't understand. You still don't understand. Plus nothing. Bow your heads with the music. We close. Maybe you are here today. And you're like, I don't think I've ever understood that quite like maybe today. If a light came on. If there was clarity like you haven't had before. If your heart and soul leapt in a way that you haven't sensed and thought, I don't have that. I don't have what he's talking about. Oh, please don't leave here the same. Right now, simply pray this prayer. God sees your heart. Say, oh God, I am a sinner who could never fix my sin problem. I could never be good enough. I could never do enough good. But Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. I believe. I believe. I put all my trust in him. I rest in him and his finished work. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Own me. Lead me. Help me from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.